pray. Jesus, you're, you are awesome. You are beautiful. We are so grateful to be here in your presence with your spirit. Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would speak. Would you help us to understand it rightly? Would you encourage our souls? Would you help us to commune with you in this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Dan. I'm our college and young adults pastor here at PBC. And uh, this time of year is especially exciting in our college ministry because we've got a lot of our local colleges and universities, Stanford and Santa Clara and others that are starting up tomorrow uh, or the following week. And so we're excited to be welcoming back our college students. Uh, If you are a college student, I would love to meet you. Please come say hi after the service. Uh, I'll be out on the patio and would, would love the opportunity to meet you. We were sharing earlier about our our favorite things about fall. And one of my favorite things about fall, a little tradition that we've developed over the last few years as a family, is going to visit a pumpkin patch. Uh, It always feels a little bit strange when it's like, you know, 90 and you're at a pumpkin patch, but sometimes that happens here in the fall. And we play a little game each year with our kids as they get bigger to see like, how big of a pumpkin can you carry this year? So we'll see, that'll come in a couple weeks. Maybe I'll keep you posted. Uh, Another kind of staple of fall is the start of the football season. Now, uh, I'm not a huge football guy, but I I want to tell you, I want to start with uh, talking about football a little bit, specifically high school football in Texas, okay? In Texas, high school football is like the end-all be-all. It's huge. And uh, Jason Street is one of the, the best high school football quarterbacks that the state of Texas has ever known. He played for the Dillon Panthers in his senior year. Uh, he, he was the one who was supposed to lead the Panthers to the state championship. Expectations were high. Everybody was hoping that they would get there. And the whole city of Dillon was just on fire. First game of the season came along. And towards the end of the game, uh, Street w- was tackled. And, and he got injured so badly that they had to cart him off the field. It ended up being a season-ending injury for him. The backup quarterback at the time was a guy named Matt Saracen, this sophomore kid. Uh, He he had never played even a single play in a real high school football game. And now the the whole attention of of the crowd was on him. And and the expectations that they came in that day with just felt like they, they had been lowered, just their legs chopped out from underneath them. And everybody was looking to Matt Saracen to say, is this guy going to be able to do anything for us? And and hope was really low. The first couple plays that Saracen was out on the field were were horrible. So a missed play call, a near interception, uh, just a couple of really bad plays. It was not off to a good start. But as we kept going, the crowd, as they watched this, began to feel that things were shifting a little bit. There was a completed pass here, a few yards gained there. And as the Panthers marched down the field, they they scored a touchdown. They were now only behind by three points with 21 seconds left in the game. And they got the ball back on an onside kick. And now they actually have a chance to win this game. And Matt Saracen throws a beautiful game-winning touchdown pass. And the crowd goes wild. It was phenomenal. But that was just the first game of the season, and there was still going to be a long way to get to that Texas state championship. And that is how the first episode of Friday Night Lights begins. (laughs) 
Friday Night Lights is a TV series about high school football in Texas. And one of the things that I love about Friday Night Lights is it, is it plays with the idea of hope, right? We start that game and our, our hope and our expectation is high, right? We, we are, are so excited for this season that's ahead of the Dillon Panthers. But then when the star quarterback gets injured, it's like tragedy, like all hope is gone. And this sophomore kid with no real experience on the field comes in and you're just left thinking like, it's over. Where where could we possibly go from here? But then as these plays start being completed, as points start getting scored, as they win this game, we we start to wonder, is there hope that the Dillon Panthers could actually still make it to the state championship? And and we don't know. There's not a lot of hope, but, but this little seed of hope is born. Last week, we started our series in the book of Exodus, looking at chapter 1. And and Exodus begins with a similar kind of trajectory to Friday Night Lights. We start, uh, and at the the beginning of the book, we're we're feeling high. It starts at a high point. The people of Israel uh, had just survived a a massive worldwide famine by making their way to Egypt under the care of their brother Joseph, who was one of the most powerful people in the country. And, And they thrived there under Joseph. But then there's a tragedy that happened. Joseph dies his whole generation dies, the Pharaoh that knew him died, and a new Pharaoh comes in and he makes it his mission to to get rid of, to subject uh, the the Hebrew people, to eliminate this threat. And so we saw this happen in chapter one. He he enslaves the people and places these, these, these impossible burdens on them. And yet we saw that they continued to multiply. And then he commanded all of the Hebrew midwives to kill any baby boy that was born. And still the people began to multiply. But at the end of the chapter, Pharaoh had enlisted all of the Egyptians, the whole country to be on the lookout for any young Hebrew boys and to kill them by throwing them in the Nile. And we're just, we were left feeling like, what hope is there? Where is the story going to go from here? Today, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 2. And what we're going to see in this chapter are are these seeds of hope that are born. And in this chapter, those seeds aren't going to sprout. They're not going to flourish, but but they're going to be born. They're going to be watered. They're going to put some roots down. And we're going to begin to see, to get a sense of where this book is going. As we gather here together this morning, I wonder how many of us show up here in need of some hope. Maybe, maybe you find yourself in a situation uh, where it's, it's life and death. There's, there's extreme, uh, extreme oppression or something like this, uh, freedom on the line like the people of Israel, sort of an all-encompassing situation. Maybe some of us feel like we're in that situation. Maybe others of us are just having a hard time finding hope in one particular area of our lives. Maybe it's in the context of a relationship or in the context of your job or the context of your mental health, and and you're just struggling to find hope. It's not not clear how the situation is going to resolve. The, The way forward is uncertain. My hope and prayer for us this morning is that for those of us who find ourselves in that situation, who are struggling to find hope in some way, 
that this morning we, we might be able to experience some seeds of hope in our lives. Maybe it's not full blown. Maybe it's not this, this robust faith that you're holding on to, but, but just a, a small seed, just something that, that gives us hope that maybe God is up to something. Maybe things are changing. We're going to see that happen as we look at the second, the second chapter of the book of Exodus. We're going to look at it in a few different scenes. There's these, these three kind of instances throughout the chapter where we begin to see uh, these seeds of hope emerge. So let's begin at the beginning of the chapter, verses one and two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So here we're, we're introduced to a couple, a married couple. We're, we're told that they're both Levites. Now at this time in the history of the people of Israel, the Levites were just one of the tribes. They're going to be appointed as the tribe of priests and religious leaders when the tabernacle comes along later in Exodus, but we're not there yet. And yet, yet the author drops this in to, to signify to us that, that this couple is important and that this child that they have is important. They managed to hide the child for the first three months of its life in their home, right? The Egyptians are out looking for little babies to kill and they hide their, their baby boy for three months but you can't hide a baby forever. And so they need to come up with some other plan. So we read what they did in verses three and four. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and, and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, uh, this, this, this mother wants to keep her child safe. So she gets this basket, she waterproofs it, and she hides this three-month-old baby in the basket, places it in the Nile. She probably didn't leave it there, right? That, that wouldn't really be helpful for the baby. That's not gonna uh, allow the baby to survive, but she probably hid it there when there was you know, a lot of Egyptians around and she was worried that this baby might be discovered. But this plan to keep the child safe ends up not being so foolproof. We read about this starting in verse five. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to, to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the, go, the girl went and called the, the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So in these verses, we're, we're beginning to see all these different seeds of hope emerging. First, we have this baby who manages to survive, at least to this point, against this edict that Pharaoh has put out that he should be killed. He, he's, he's put in the water and he's discovered by an Egyptian the, the actual daughter of the man who ordered his death 
and yet she chooses to take pity on him. And then in no small miracle, the mother of this child, the birth mother of this child, is actually able to raise him for probably the first three or four years of his life, during which time he would have been able to establish strong bonds with his birth family and the beginnings of his identity as one of the Hebrew people. Then he's brought back into uh, Pharaoh's daughter's house, becomes her son, and is raised as a grandson to the most powerful man in the world. And as we, as we learn about this boy, we just start to wonder, is, is something going on? Is something about to happen? Is God doing something here? All of these you know, hints at hope, they're, they're just kind of on the surface of the text. We can just see them as we read the narrative. But there's another one that comes through in the Hebrew, but not so well in the English. The word that's used for basket, this basket that uh, Moses was placed in, is the word tebah. And that word only shows up one other time in the Old Testament. It shows up in the story of Noah. Tebah is the word that is used for ark. So baby Moses is placed in an ark. And this ark is then what leads to his deliverance. Moses, or Noah, excuse me, built an ark. And it was this ark that led him and his family into deliverance. The, the substance that, that Moses' mom uses to waterproof this basket is called bitumen. It's the same thing that Noah was instructed to use on the ark. And then this basket is placed in a river and it's that basket that saves him from what otherwise would have been a fate of drowning. The same thing that happened to Noah. And so as we read this story, we are meant to hear the story of Noah in the background. And we are meant to see that just as God used Noah to bring deliverance to his people, so too God was doing a new act of deliverance. It was an act that started with the deliverance of this child himself, but this child we know would grow up to be a deliverer himself. And as this story would have been told in the nation of Israel, it was told to remind the people of something that was true of God, which is that God is a God who delivers. And because God is a God who delivers, he is a God that we can place our hope in. The, the lesson that this text is meant to teach is that we can hope in the God who delivers. We can hope in the God who delivers. I, I was thinking about this this week and I was thinking about the context of my life and, and my world and thinking, what, what are those situations in which I am longing for God to step in and bring an act of deliverance, an act of redemption, an act of healing? Well, what are those situations that I'm aware of that it just, it feels like there's no way out. It feels like there's, there's no good outcome, no workable solution. There's a marriage that came to mind of someone who's close to me that just is on the rocks and it just looks like there's no hope for this marriage. There's a situation relating to physical health that has a lot of stress and, and anxiety and worry and fear around it. And the outcome is uncertain. There's, there's an instance of, of addiction where it just feels like that, that web of addiction runs so deep and so tight that how could it ever be broken? I wonder for you, as you think of what, what, are, what are those situations for you in your life where you are longing for God to break in, to, to bring an act of deliverance. 
we need to remind ourselves of the truth that our God is a God who delivers. That's who he is. It's what he does. It's what he did with, with Noah. It's what he did with Moses. It's what he did through Jesus on the cross. And it's what he wants to do in our lives, to bring deliverance, to bring freedom, to bring healing and restoration. And because that's who God is and that's what God does, we can place our hope in him. And just, just knowing that can give us that, that small seed of hope. Right? Hearing that truth, it, it probably doesn't radically transform the way that we feel about whatever situation we find ourselves in. Maybe for you, you feel faith just welling up in you. That's wonderful. But, but maybe the, this truth doesn't radically change your feeling about the situation, but, but perhaps it could provide just that seed of hope. God, are you doing something? Is something about to change? Are you about to bring an act of deliverance? As the story continues, uh, we're going to get a, a couple of scenes from Moses' life before he's actually called by God to free the people from Israel. The, these are the only two scenes really that we get from the time that Moses is a baby until he's about 40. And, and in these two little vignettes that we get, we see Moses developing into this deliverer that God has called him to be. So let's look starting in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. It's kind of strange. This is the first story that we get about Moses, the first story in which he is acting. And in this story, he, he kills this Egyptian man and buries him in the sand. What are we supposed to think about this? It, has Moses gotten off track? Is he a murderer now? Well, there's, there's more going on here. Remember, this is the man whom God has called, whom God has appointed to deliver his people from Egypt. Moses is called to be a deliverer. And here he has identified himself with his people. He, he's not in the palace. He's not enjoying all of the, the wonderful things that were, would have been his as a prince in Egypt, all of the wealth and power and fame and prestige. He, he wasn't off enjoying that somewhere. Instead, he was in a slave camp with his people and he had compassion on them. And he sees this slave driver beating one of his people almost to death. And Moses is filled with this righteous anger. And he acts on that anger at the defense of this defenseless Hebrew man. And he kills the man who would have killed him. It's the first act of deliverance that we have in this story. It's not meant to be normative for us as if we are supposed to go out and do this, right? We, we see in scripture clearly that, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He says, it's mine to repay. But here, God has raised up Moses to act as a deliverer for his people. And Moses is, is stepping into that in order to bring justice to this man who was being beaten and nearly killed. As we go on, uh, we see that there's, there's more that follows. Let's look in verses 13 and 14. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? 
He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he, and he thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses is in a tough spot here, right? He, he's trying to have compassion on his people and show them that he is for them as a defender. And yet the people don't see it that way. Right? They still picture Moses as this Egyptian prince and an oppressor. And so when he tries to intervene in this conflict between two Hebrew men, they say, oh, you, you're just gonna kill us too, right? Like you killed that guy. But Pharaoh is gonna interpret this very differently, right? He's not viewing Moses as one of the oppressors. He's viewing Moses as a threat to the state, an enemy of the state. And he says, he needs to die. And so Moses runs for his life and he runs to the land of Midian. In Midian, we get the second scene, the second vignette from these young adult years of Moses. And here's what we read, starting in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Here we have a second act of deliverance. Moses, again, stepping in on behalf of someone who is oppressed in order to bring justice. These seven daughters of this priest Midian who are, are being harassed by this band of shepherds. And Moses steps in and he saves them. Again, he's acting as a deliverer. He's doing what God has called him to do, becoming the man that God has be called him to become. And, and this time though, his, his act of deliverance is gonna go noticed and appreciated. Verse 18, when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gersom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. These two stories that we get between the time Moses is a baby and when he is about 40 years old. In both of these little stories, we see Moses stepping up as a deliverer to fight against injustice. And here again, we have a little seed of hope. Something is happening. Something is changing. This man is important. God is doing something. And that something that God is doing is bringing justice. And so the lesson for the, for the Hebrew people as they heard about this, and for us today as we read this story, is that we can hope in the God of justice. We can hope in the God of justice. You know, when we look out at the world today, there are so many instances of injustice that we can see. Right? There are numerous that, that come to mind. Geopolitical events, the refugee crisis this year has just been heavy on my heart, whether we think of Afghanistan or those fleeing from the Ukraine. All of these uh, situations of injustice in our own country, whether they be re related to racial oppression or domestic violence or uh, gun violence or, or anything like this, all of these instances of injustice. 
And sometimes in the face of that, it, it can feel overwhelming. It can even feel hopeless, right? Well, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to hold all of this? How are we supposed to respond to all this? Why isn't God doing something about this? And yet here we have, we have a seed of hope. God is doing something. God is the God of justice. God is the God who steps in on behalf of victims to bring healing and recovery. He, he is the God who stands against the oppressors. God says that in his kingdom, justice reigns. And that kingdom is among us. It, it's, it's coming and it's even here in part. That one day God will punish every oppressor and God will save every victim. And here in this world, before Jesus comes back, we live in that in-between. God is bringing his justice, but it's not fully here yet. And yet we can hope. We can hope because we know that God is a God of justice. We know that God is a God who is for victims and against oppressors. And so we can, we can take our hope and we can place it in the God of justice and say, God, I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't know what to do with this. I feel helpless, but I know you don't. I want to place this in your hands. I know all of us have various kinds of experiences and various ways in which we may have experienced injustice. Maybe we currently are being oppressed in some way. Again, this, this truth that God is a God of justice, it, it doesn't blow everything open for us, right? It, it doesn't just radically change our perspective, but maybe, just maybe, it could serve as a seed of hope, a reminder that this is who God is. And maybe, just maybe, God is about to do something about it. We can place our hope in him. There's one final scene, set of verses in this passage as the chapter ends up. And here we see even more reason for hope, even more confidence that God is in fact doing something. Verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. For over 400 years, the people of Israel had, had sat under this soul-crushing and body-breaking yoke of slavery put on them by the Egyptians. In that time, we don't have any record of them calling out to God. We don't, we don't see that in, in the story. We, we begin to wonder if perhaps the people have forgot about God, probably because they feel that God has forgotten about them after these 400 long, impossibly hard years of slavery. And yet here in this moment, this, this weight of slavery that, that was sitting on the people and crushing them caused them to groan. And in this groaning, by the grace of God, somehow they turned back to God and they cried out to him for help. And it says that God heard God heard their cries. God remembered his covenant, the promises that he had made to their fathers. God saw them. He saw the situation that they were in. He saw their suffering and God knew. He knew what they had been through. 
He knew what they had been experiencing. He knew how they longed to be free of this burden of slavery. And God knew. He knew what he was going to do about it. He knew that he was raising up Moses to free the people. He knew that Pharaoh was going to harden his heart against him and that he was going to send the plagues. He knew that he was going to part the Red Sea and that the people of Israel were going to walk through on dry ground while the water crushed over the Egyptian army. God knew. And then God knew that once they got out in the desert, the people were going to whine and they were going to complain because they were hungry and they were thirsty. And they were going to say, we want to go back to Egypt. And God knew that they were going to worship a golden calf, exchanging the glory of God for, for something that they could make with their own hands. And God knew that for the next thousand years plus, his people by and large were going to reject him over and over and over again falling into idolatry and immorality of every kind. God knew. He knew that his people needed a savior, that the world needed a savior. He knew that he was going to send Jesus. He knew that Jesus was going to be born and he was going to live the life of a servant and die the death of a criminal. God knew that Jesus was going to be tortured, that he was going to be killed. He was going to be crucified on that cross. And God knew that he was going to raise up three days later. He knew that he was going to defeat sin and death. God knew that through Jesus, our sins were going to be forgiven and death itself was going to be defeated so that we might live with God forever. God knew. And he knew that we would be gathered here together today, each and every one of us. He, he knew all of those moments that would comprise your life up till this moment all of the things that you're experiencing in the present, all that you will experience going forward, God knew all of it. He, he knew all of the, those places in your heart where you are following after other gods, where you are trapped in idolatry of some kind, God knew. And all of those places within you that long for God, that love God, that want to be with him and want to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to him, God knew. All of it, he knew. And he looked on us and he loved us. From that beginning, all the way back in Exodus 2, God knew. God knew what he was doing. And because God knows, we can put our hope in him. Right? We can hope in the God who knows. Who knows everything about us. Who knows everything that's happened to us who knows everything that we have done or wanted to, done, to do or not done. He knows all of it. And he loves us. And he sent his son, Jesus, to deliver us, to free us from the bondage of slavery, the, the grip, the oppression that sin and death once held over us. God knew. He knew he didn't want it to last forever. He knew that he was going to send Jesus to be our true deliverer. We can put our hope in him. Right? Maybe all of that doesn't radically change our perspective this morning. Right? Our life is still the same life that we walked in here today. The struggles that we will leave with will be the same struggles that we walked in with today. But we've seen that God is a God who delivers. That God is a God of justice and God is a God who knows. And maybe those truths about who God is could be for us today just the seeds of hope, right? To give us just enough to go on to make it through today. 
God, are you about to do something? God, are you about to bring an act of deliverance? Are you about to, to, to move us to a place of freedom? Are you just saying you want to be with us here in this place that we find ourselves? Seeds of hope. But hope can be a risky thing, you know? Earlier this year, I bought some Bitcoin. Not a lot of Bitcoin, but more Bitcoin than I wish I had bought. Um, but I, I have some hope that maybe one day this Bitcoin will be worth much more than it's worth now. That's a risky kind of hope, no matter what you might think about cryptocurrency, right? It's, it, it's risky. If you were to, to, to invest everything into Bitcoin, that might be the best decision you ever made. That might be the worst decision you ever made. We don't know. To hope is a risky thing to do. It's risky to hope in your own abilities. It's, it's risky to hope in your job. It's risky to hope in other people. Hope is risky. But hope in God is not risky. Hope in God is secure because we know who God is. We know what his heart is. We know that he is all powerful. We know that he is a God of grace. We know that he loves us with an unconditional love stronger than anything we could ever imagine. We know that's who God is. And so we can put our hope in him. We can put our hope in him. If you came in here today feeling hopeless, hopeless in general, hopeless in one specific area, I hope that maybe you've been able to find just a, a seed of hope, something that you could hold on to, to take into your week, to talk with God about this week and see what he might do with that. We're gonna turn back now to, to worship this God who is worthy of our hope and worthy of our worship. I wanna invite you to stand with me. And as, as we prepare to sing again together, I want us just to take, take a moment, a moment in the quiet, moment in the stillness and just ask yourself, what is, what is the place in my life where I'm feeling hopeless? What, what is that place where I don't see a way out, where I need God to step in? Just express that to God. Acknowledge that to yourself. Maybe it's something you were well aware of coming into this morning. Maybe it's something that you hadn't paid much attention to. In the midst of that, that need for hope, God, we turn to you. Sometimes that's all we can do is just turn to you. So here in this place, we turn to you and we acknowledge that you are who you say that you are. You are a God of justice. You are a God who delivers. God, you are a miracle worker. You're one who will, who will part seas so that we might walk through on dry ground. God, this is who you are. Lord, allow the truth of who you are to sink deeply into us so that we might hold on to you in hope. You are worthy. You are worthy.